G'day everybody, Matt Ellis with you for the latest edition of the Cricket Library podcast and we have an absolute treat for you today as we catch up with former international umpire Peter Parker. Today Peter will take us on a journey from his early days of loving cricket in primary school right through to what he's up to now inspiring the next generation of umpires. A man who stood in some controversial games, some heroic finishes and umpired some of the greatest cricketers of the modern era. We'll get some insights from Peter into what it was like standing in the middle watching the great Shane Warne ply his craft, how he learnt from some big mistakes and of course we'll ask Peter his three selections to have at a dream net session. This is a chat you don't want to miss. Time to sit back, relax, and enjoy the Peter Parker story on the Cricket Library podcast. A very warm welcome to the Cricket Library podcast. Peter Parker, thanks so much for joining us. No worries, Matt. Thank you for the invite. Well, it's an absolute pleasure having people like yourself on the program. We, we love people that have experienced all forms of cricket and and all different parts of the game you're known for your umpiring career a distinguished umpiring career of many years and you're still involved in the game helping the next generation of umpires can you tell us a little bit about where your passion for the game began yeah look a long long time ago um i i went to yoronga primary school in queensland which was a a very strong sporting school in those days. And through my mother, I played hockey and I, I won a trophy. And it was a show and tell in grade four. And uh, my teacher was also one of the cricket coaches. And he said, well, if you can hit a hockey ball, you may as well come and try and hit a cricket ball. So he took us all down to the nets, all the aspiring young cricketers. And um, started to throw us cricket balls and, and get us to hit cricket balls and then we'd go onto the oval and we'd play, you know, shorter versions of the game. Um, and from there, I just started to fall in love with it and you know, I, I was okay at it. So um, I made our, our junior team the next year and then right through to grade seven and played in Metropolitan Championships, Brisbane um, junior primary school rep teams and um, yeah, just just went on from there. And what was your what was your specialty? Were you a batter or a bit of an all rounder? Um, I was a wicket keeper that could bat, basically. Yeah, that's cool. And did you did you find that you still played other sports as well as cricket when you were growing up? You mentioned you played a bit of hockey. Did you play any any winter sports as well? Absolutely. Um, strangely enough, for Queensland, my my predominant football code was AFL, um, okay. and I played that for a club, South Brisbane, um, who happened to wear the Essendon Bombers colours. So naturally, the progression was I followed the Bombers, and I was lucky enough to to train with them a couple of times. Um, and as I got into high school, I played. Aussie rules on Saturday and rugby league on Sunday. So, yeah, it was a pretty full-on sporting life as a as a kid. Just on that, um, a lot of 
a lot of people sort of get tunnel vision focused on on a particular sport. D- did you find for you having a, a bit more of a well-rounded perspective that, that that helped you enjoy your sport more? Oh, absolutely. But even further than that, I, I think that playing different sports, um, I played a lot of tennis as well, played junior rep tennis, um, but I think by playing different sports, it, it also helps you in your decision-making process. Mm. Um, each sport has a different requirement around the decisions you make, how you make them. So as you progress, not only in sport, but in life, it, it's a great foundation for people to learn how to make decisions. Yeah, and decision-making, uh, a really important skill to have as an umpire. Now, can can you tell us how you got into umpiring? We have a look at some of the, the more current umpires have been guys and that have played first-class cricket. I think of like a Paul Rifle or a Paul Wilson, uh, even Damasena uh, from Sri yeah. Lanka. They, they've, they've Rod had, Tucker. Yeah. yeah, Rod Tucker. They've had that career and then um, the next step has been umpiring after they've finished playing. You got into umpiring relatively young. Yeah, I did actually. Um, it was... It was one of those seasons. I started the season and um, first game of the season, I fractured my thumb and I was out and it was a fairly decent break and I was out until the game before Christmas. And I happened to be at the ground and Mel Johnson was umpiring there, the Queensland Test umpire. And Mel said, oh, you're not playing this year? I said, oh, no, I'm out injured. You know, he said, well, mate, we're short of umpires why don't you come and become an umpire? And I said, oh, yeah, no, I don't think so. <laughs> and as fortune would have it, I ran into Mal at a function. I was going to a primary school's cricket function at the old cricketers club. And as I walked in, Mel Johnson and another um, one of Brisbane's first grade umpires, Merv Mush, were in the cricketers club having a beer. And as I walked through, I started speaking to them and they said, oh, come on, come and umpire. And I went, oh, no, not no. It's not my scene. Um, went to the function, come out, ran into them again, and they said, "Come on, come on." And you know, I sort of said to Mala, jokingly, oh, "Well, if you can be a test umpire, I suppose there's no reason why I can't." <laughs> yeah, I'll do, it. I'll do it for a couple of months. So that was the plan. I, I went and did my exam the next day, and passed that. Got appointed to an under eighteen game on Saturday. And did that and quite enjoyed it Um, and progressed up the ranks fairly quickly, went back and played the last round before Christmas, broke my thumb again in the same, pretty much the same place and went back to umpiring for the rest of the season. And at the end of the season, I I sat down with Mel um, and we had a chat and I thought, you know what, I'm probably a better umpire than I am a player. So... I'm going to stick with it. And that's how I got into it. It was just a whole lot of um, things aligned at the, at the right time. Yeah, that's amazing. And and did you find it hard stopping playing, like to have to sacrifice playing to umpire, or was it just an exciting new challenge for you? It was, a, it was an exciting new challenge, um, but I, I pretty much put myself into into the umpiring space, same as I did as a playing space. And, and by that, I meant 
I would still go down to trainings early um, and, and watch some bowling and, and trying to improve myself. Not that I really knew what I was doing other than just watching a lot of balls being bowled at that time. Mm. Um, I used to umpire as many games as I could. If there was a an under-12s game on a Sunday, I would go and do that. And, you know, for, for any aspiring umpire, there is nothing that beats standing out in the middle and umpiring as much cricket as you can. And your progression through the grades and... and when did you get to a point, you know, I know you jokingly said that you could umpire test cricket, just just as a side comment before it all began. When, when did you actually realise that that could become a reality for you? Uh, it was probably when I was named on the, the national panel as it was then. Um, way back, it's a different structure to what it was now. But um, when I was selected on that and... I thought, oh, you know, I hope I'm good enough to get a one-day game and, and if I go well enough in one-day cricket, then, you know, you, your dream is ultimately test cricket and you, you're one step away or half a dozen good performances away. Because was it back in the day the, the state-based umpires would do the home shield games? Is that essentially how it works? So you were trying to sort of become in the top, two or three in Queensland to get some shield cricket? Yeah, it, it was it was a very interesting time, actually. Like, um, when I was probably ranked the top in Queensland, at most I was doing three shield games in a season. Um, wow. Yeah, so when I first started, um, when I come in, there was Mel Johnson and Cole Timmons, were on the national panel, um, both test umpires. Yep. Um, I made my debut and did one shield game for the season. Then the next season, Mel retired. No, yeah, the next season, Mel retired. So I got two shield games for the season and did that for, for quite a while. Um, which was it was challenging because when you had a good a good game like today they that you might do you know two or three in two months we you know I might have done one in October and not another one until January mm. so and also in those days we only had um, one maybe two um, the old Gillette Cup McDonald's Cup. Mm one-day domestics. So your opportunity to perform at the higher level were really, really limited. So you had to make the most of, of every chance that you had. And I was, I was fortunate enough to have done pretty well. I, you know, I did have a, a hiccup with a, a game that was deemed not as good for a while uh, in, in one of those seasons. But it was, you know, I had to wait till the next year to get out there and get back on the horse. So, you know, your mental preparation and, and that type of thing was a lot more difficult than, than what it is today. Just on the mental side of umpiring, a four-day game compared to what you're doing in grade cricket, you might do a grade cricket game, you might stand for 100 overs on a Saturday afternoon and then you, then you, might, you might do a Sunday game as well. What, what, was, what was your method for dealing with four-day cricket? 
and then five day cricket when you moved into test cricket. How, how did you manage your concentration? Yeah, the the first couple of games I did um, was I didn't manage it particularly well. It was probably probably not until about the third season that I, that I really understood that it is still only four single days. Mm. So you know, rather than focusing and looking at, oh, you know, I've had a poor day yesterday. I've got to make up for it tomorrow. You've got to close the first. You've got to close every day. At the every at the end of each day, and then you've got to start the next day as though it's a fresh a fresh game and a fresh day. Mm. So learning learning to put behind you um, your errors or your perceived errors um, and move forward to the next one was was really really challenging because you know, when I started umpiring, everyone said, "Oh, the most important ball is the next one," which it is. Mm. But no one ever talked to us about how to close out that perceived error or that that element of doubt because um, until you can close it, you can't move forward. So in the latter part or probably halfway through my career, I started working with sports psychologists around how I would close that, that decision. Um, and once I got comfortable and my routines and processes were such that I believed in them, I was able to do that and, and moving forward was a lot easier. Mm, and and we all make mistakes. Players make mistakes. Uh, umpires are going to ma- make mistakes. And, and I guess being able to put it, put it behind you and be able to move on helps you to effectively make good decisions in the present moment, which is the what what you were saying about the the most important ball being that next ball. Yeah, and it's the same. It's the same as a batter, you know. So your your batter will play and miss. The good players close that out and just go. Oh, it was too good. Um, I'll just play the next one as it comes. Mm. From an umpiring perspective, if there's a huge appeal and yeah, you, know, you might have got it right, but the the impression on the field or body language of players, some of the, the the players might suggest there was a bit of doubt. If if I take that and I keep thinking about that, then the focus on the next ball means that I'm not going to get that correct because I'm looking back. Mm. Um, and, and one of the phrase, one, you know, one of the phrases that, that I used was, if I continue to look back, I won't be able to. Um, to function in the in the next moment, mm. so that's it's exactly the same. Or the the bowler. And look, the other thing is sometimes as an as an umpire, you've just got to admit that the bowler was too good for you. You know, mm. it might have been too quick. It might have cut back, and it's gone between everything. And and you you really don't you don't know. And sometimes that happens, but it doesn't mean that it's poor umpiring. It just means that the ball was too good for you. Probably the best example I can think of from that, from your career, the Hobart test was in Akram bowling to Justin Langer, very historic, famous test match for Australia. Justin Langer was sort of at the crossroads of his career at that time. Uh, And Australia in, in in a world of hurt against Pakistan in the fourth innings. And was in Akram's bowling to Justin Langer, and, and you have to make a decision. Uh, can can you tell us 
your recollections of that and and how that panned out? Yeah, yeah look, the, the recollection was it. I, I saw the ball, and, and one of the things I'll just go briefly is you know when you talk about the difference, it's probably not so much Premier cricket to Shield cricket, but Premier cricket to international cricket, and one of the things that I'd always been taught when I started was it was what you heard then what you saw but when you go out onto an SCG back in those days for a one day international and you've got 50,000 people making a lot of noise all of a sudden you don't hear so (laughs) you've got to you know you've got to change the way you process things to believing what you see over what you hear now, the one with Justin, the ball cut back, I didn't get a really solid noise. Mm. It, there, was a, there was a faint noise, but it didn't sound inside edge. The way I went looking at it, I thought it, had, it hadn't hit the bat. Um, I didn't know what the noise was, so I gave it not out. Yep. It was interesting because that was the first season we had Snicko. And it was also the first season that they were putting them on replay board. And and we were always told that that when it was a solid inside edge, you would have a sharp increase in the noise. So the spike would be there all to see. So after I've given it not out, I looked and up, sure enough, up on the the board, I didn't turn to the board, but I walked over to give Wasamakram his jumper and his cap. And just the where he was standing, the replay board was behind him. And the spike, and it was a very, very low spike. And I thought, oh, well, I think I've got that right. Mm. I spoke to Peter Willey, who I stood with, and he said, uh, he said, I don't think he hit it. He said, but, you know, there was something. I said, yeah, look, I agree. But I went with my sight, and as time has has come on, um, I got it wrong. Um, but by the same token, there were other opportunities in the game for him to get out and Pakistan didn't capitalise on it. So ultimately, you know, yes, I made a mistake, but so did the, so did the, the fielding team. So, yeah, it was, it was difficult because I thought I'd had a really, really good game up until that one. And... Um, yeah, and it, and, you can't it. You, yeah. and you talk about that like it, it's easy to say retrospectively um, after the fact that you, that you might have got it wrong, but it sounds like with the information you had at the time, you, you've got a split second to make a decision, and you, if you give that out and it's later clearly not out, it, it's it's the you, you're kind of going against what you thought at the time. So yeah. It's it's one of those tricky things of being an umpire. You've got minuscule amount of time to, to make that decision. Yeah, and, and look, the other thing that – one of the things that you, you, as an umpire, you get to look at was that generally when there's an edge, the rotation of the seam or the, the way that the ball is, um, is tracking, so you might see that the seam of the ball has moved from the edge if you've got the noise and, and what you've seen – Whereas that one, it didn't appear to change direction at all. Um, but 
you know, I, I knew not long after the game that I'd got it wrong because Justin came into the dressing room and um, he said to the match referee and um, and myself, he said, oh, great decision, Park. He said it was a clicky bat handle. <laughs> and, and look, it could have been that. There has been that. But as John, as just after Justin walked out, I said to um, to John Reed, who was a match referee, I said, "Oh well, John, I'll put my hand up and I'll tell you I've got it wrong." And he said, "Oh, why is that?" And I said, "Because Justin never would never come in and say that if he hadn't hit it. <laughs> he was just justifying it." So, and look, that was it was great. It was a great gesture by by Justin. Um, but I knew in myself at that point that I'd. 100% got it wrong but you have to move on and and the the difficulty of it is that out of all of that on the news that evening the newspapers next morning radio news all of that was speaking about my decision mm. so for me going out the next day I had to put all of that noise behind me and still had to finish strong because as I said I'd had a good test match up until that point Yep. And I could have really had a poor test match if I kept reflecting backwards. So yep. the lesson was I had to go forward. I had to now move into tomorrow and deal with the consequences of a, a mistake after the game's finished. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And uh, let's backtrack a little bit. Y- your debut test match is at the Gabba, and we don't normally associate the Gabba with... Uh, legendary spin bowling performances, but the late great Shane Warne uh, was bowling very well in in your debut Test match. What were your reflections on umpiring, standing, and watching a master uh, at, at the top of his game? Yeah, it, it's look. It's interesting to say that I umpired Shane a lot through his career, um, and and it was a privilege. But that Test match was really interesting because Australia actually played. Two spinners. They had um, Shane Warne and Tim May, mm. and and Tim was very very underrated. He was an outstanding off spinner that would have been um, held a lot of records if he'd have played in an era other than the one that he did. So, you know, I'd umpired Tim at Shield level, um, but I'd never stood behind Shane Warne. So that was my first ever time. And as you say, the Gabba, in those days, most people believed the Gabba was a fast bowler's wicket and, you know, you you didn't play spin in Brisbane. So to, to be doing a test match and all of a sudden I've got two spinners, one that I've never seen and one that was I knew was going to be challenging. So I had Craig McDermott open the bowling for my end and bowled 5 over. Bowled six or seven overs, and then Tim May come on and bowled until about half an hour from lunch, and then Shane Warne come on, and Shane Warne was so different to everyone else I'd I'd stood behind. Um, I'd stood behind um, Peter Sleep, Trevor Holmes, um, you know, Barry Bennett. Um, and all of a sudden, you had Shane Warne. And as a leg spinner, he was so, so unique. In, in the, he was probably in 
three different phases of his career. The first part, he was really quick through the air, mm. very, very accurate, and batters just couldn't get use their feet to get down to him. Then he broke his finger and he didn't quite have the control that he had previous, but he was still very good, didn't didn't go as quick through the air. I mean, in, in the early days, you could actually hear the fizz out of the fingers. That, mm. That's how much revolution he had on the ball. He turned it a, a long way and he had a, um, a skitter, a flipper, that predominantly through that era, no one bowled. So mm. there were a whole heap of things that I'd never seen before. Um, and as you say, he bowled really well. And, and the, the third part of Shane's career was that where he became the master of mind control and um, you know getting batsmen to play the way that they wanted. So he didn't have the control. He was probably or he was slower through the air, but his guile was just enormous. And and he'd learned a few party tricks along the way. You know, he had. He had two flippers. He had one that come out of the side of his hand. There was one, the more traditional that that flicked through the front, the the thumb, the thumb and the middle finger. Um, he had big leg spin, big uh, small leg spin, top spin, and then he he developed um, and um, McGill helped him a lot. Stuart McGill helped him develop a wrongen, mm. which he didn't really have. So all of a sudden, he's had a greater variety in the in the last part of his career. So, um, yeah, he was he was a really interesting character. But yeah, that that one in Brisbane was a real eye opener for me because we we virtually didn't see them because um, we didn't do enough games. Mm. And, and and a lot of decisions to make when Shane Warne's bowling. He's always creating opportunities. Absolutely, he was always. In and around, if the batter missed, he was always going to ask the question. Yeah, and and that's that's the great bowlers, and 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 that's why they're successful at Test level is they just build and create pressure. And and he was also in an era. Remember that um, you had Glenn McGrath and Jason Gillespie, who who were also very much in it in and around the stumps. So if there was a play and miss and it hit the pad, you pretty much knew that they were going to be asking the question and um, and making you make the decision. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, what about your relationship with the players? Um, Matty Hayden in his book uh, talks about uh, when, when you were umpiring that the guys cottoned on to the fact that you enthusiastically gave centre when they were taking guard and um, the, the, the guys like Ricky Ponting would enjoy asking you for centre just to, to get you to, to give your response out on the field. And then, and then later on in Hayden's career, everyone, everyone used to, to run with the line that, that, that you were like, he was, he was your favourite, Matty Hayden, and you're never going to get an LBW uh, and and Hayden used to sort of play that off to the other guys, telling them, "Oh, don't worry about appealing if 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 Porky's umpiring because you're just wasting your breath." And and he used to just 
like fueling that kind of fire there. What was your relationship like with the players and, and did you enjoy um, getting to know some of the guys uh, outside of the professional environment? Yeah, look, I think I had a pretty good relationship with with most with a lot of players. Um, obviously, there were some that we just didn't gel, but um, yeah, I, I thought that I had a pretty good relationship and it was something that um, I hope stemmed from respect of my ability as an umpire and, and I respected them as players. But Andrew Simons was the one that actually started the centre. Um, <laughs> you know, and I, I knew Andrew from, well, I knew his parents before Andrew really come down to Brisbane and, and played. Um, I knew his dad and um, Andrew as he sort of come through the, the ranks and you know, since his death, everyone started to realise that he was he was quite humorous and he purposefully um, changed your names and that kind of thing. <laughs> so he would he was the one that come out and he identified and I used to be project my voice very strongly on whatever guard mm. I gave, but centre was always the one that Andrew asked for as he was growing up. So that was where it become the joke and he'd ask me for centre as in centre and I'd obviously reply it then the Australians picked up on it and they would all do it and a couple of the overseas players like a Brendan McCullum was the same so yeah and that you know my the way I gave it went back to when I started and and Mel Johnson always said to me as I was coming through the games, he said, what you need to be able to do is project your voice, give a strong re- response to the, the request, so as you're now looking as though you're in control. Mm. Whereas if you you speak softly and, and the players don't hear it, what will happen is they will start to have questions about whether you really think you should be there. So that's where it all started. Yeah, yeah, no, it's a great one, and I could see the players really enjoying that, and and just a good, a good healthy way to build rapport with the players as well. Just just having that that sense of yeah, I'm in charge, I'm the authority here, um, but also knowing not that you're not taking yourself too seriously as well. Yeah, and, and look, the other thing was you always knew whether when a player wasn't happy with you or I would know by the way that they would ask for the centre. Yep. If they walked if they walked out and just stuck their back there and didn't say anything, you'd go, hmm, not happy with me. I must have done something. <laughs> so, you know, it, it was also a gauge from me for the personality of the players. Um, and, you know, some of them were really serious and didn't want to um, go any further or speak to you outside of, you know, just give me guard and move on with it. Or um, there were some players who'd like to carry on conversation. So, you know, all of, you know, stemming from giving centre can start to lead you into identifying player traits, player behaviours, how they are at the, when, they're, when they're batting. You know, do they want to speak to you? Do they just want to, you know, you speak to them when they speak to you? Or some just don't speak to you at all. Mm. So, you know, so it, it, you know, little things can lead to a big change or big identifications in personalities and traits that can help you 
when the time comes that you may need to manage a situation. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And um, we, we mentioned earlier, you mentioned earlier uh, a, a game, you alluded to a game where uh, you you was a bit costly for you in, in the sense that um, there were ramifications for a mistake you made in this game. It's a, a Mercantile Mutual Cup game back in the 90s. Queensland were playing South Australia, I think, up at the Gabba. And there's an 11 ball over. Yeah, yeah, yeah it was a bit interesting. But the, it, there's a bit of a story around it, though. There's a bit of a reason behind it. Oh, look, there is. Um, predominantly, I miscounted, but there's a whole... Um, a whole group of circumstances that happened that that sort of allowed it to happen but you know it, it's really interesting if I if I coach new umpires now I always one of the things I say is you know everybody here will put their hand up if I ask you who can count the six and do you understand how an umpire do you understand how as an umpire you need to do it and then I'll, I'll run through the story. And so the story basically goes, it was Queensland versus South Australia. Um, ben Johnston from South Australia was the bowler. And it was, the game was being played during the redevelopment of the Gabba. So where the umpires, players and the scorers generally sat, um, there was a, a red light above the players dressing room that, the scorers would signal to us. And if there was a problem, they'd be flashing the light and you'd see it because it was in your, your vision. But that stand had got pulled down. We got moved over to the Brisbane Lions social club side and we used the player, the, the AFL change rooms. Scorers were on top of a demountable and it was off to the side, so it wasn't somewhere you generally looked. But Ben Johnson had bowled five balls and on the sixth ball, I think it was Andrew Simons got run out and at, at the fall of the wicket, it was drinks. So traditionally, I would click the counter over and call over. But for whatever reason, and I can put it down to there was a run out, Mm. So I fixed the stumps, but before I did that, I'd clicked the counter to six, and I hadn't called over. So I we went and had drinks, and I looked down at my counter, and I thought, six. Now, you know, I know he just got run out, and that means there was one ball, so I clicked it to one. Oh. We walked back into position, and Ben bowled another five balls. Nobody on the ground knew that it was an 11 ball over until we've walked off the ground. And as I walked off the ground, Paul Nobes was 12th man for South Australia. And he's greeted us as we walked under the stand to go to the change rooms. And he said, what are you going to do about it? And I looked at him and I said, well, do about what? And he said, the 11 ball over. I said, what are you talking about? He said, you have an 11 ball over. And I said, oh, no, you don't be stupid. <laughs> Walked around to the change rooms. The phone's ringing and entered the phone and it was Judy Harris who was the scorer. 
and she said, Peter, do you realize you had an 11 ball over? And my heart sunk and I thought, oh, no. And I said, no, I didn't. When was it? And she told me when it was and I've gone, I know know exactly what's happened. She said, oh, what do I do? Do I just pull those five balls out of the score? I said, unfortunately, laws of cricket, um, the umpire count is final and it's an 11 ball over. So that then created a chain reaction with Jamie Siddons from South Australia Mm. as captain. He he wasn't happy, you know, he wasn't going to bring the team back onto the ground, um, blah, blah, blah. And look, I can't remember the score, but Queensland scored high 300s, I think. Yeah. Um, five balls in the whole scheme of scheme of things. The runs scored off that were not going to be, you know, a, a game-changing amount. Um but Mel Johnson as match referee, I said to him, I said, oh, Jamie's threatening not to take the team out. And Mel said, I'll fix that. He said, I'll go around and see him. And he just, he went around and said, um, basically, if you don't follow the umpires out um, after a period of time, um, the game will be called and you will be deemed to have forfeited um, because you wow. didn't take the field to play. South Australia followed us out, followed us out um, as you'd expect. Yeah. And um, basically we got through the game and the ramifications come thereafter. <laughs> so I got stood down from Pakistan test as third umpire. Um, and yeah, it, it was one of those probably one of the most costly decisions. But but again, you know, it, it, it was a learning opportunity. Um, yep. what, what would I do different? Well, in today's world, what would you do differently? You'd check with the scores. Yeah. Um, but, but just the fact that everybody walked to where the position that they were um, just seemed amazing. But, yeah, highly embarrassing moment, I suppose, but um, one that, you know, would I change if I could? Absolutely. Yeah. Um, did it make me better? Yes, it did because um, I built stronger routines and processes from it. And, and not long after that, um, on a positive note, you're standing at the SCG on New Year's Day for what's probably, in my memory, I, I was there as a fan, um, the most memorable one-day international of my lifetime, certainly, where Michael Bevan hits a four off the last ball. Um, what are your recollections of, of that night at the, the SCG? A lot of rain delays, uh, a lot of people went home. Um, as an umpire, what's it like standing in a game like that? Yeah, look, the, the hardest part of that is not to become emotionally involved in the game. You know, the, the crowd was and, – and look, to set the scene um, – you know, Australia, when they bowled, had the West Indies on the ropes. And, you know, we were thinking, oh, this is going to be a really early night. Um, Australia's dominating. And then I think Phil Simmons yep. got got some runs with one of the tail enders, put on a reasonable total. 
and um, and then Australia got off to a, a start where they'd lost a few and were in trouble. And Bevan, I think Paul Rifle was the other one that just got Australia the back in the game. Yeah. Um, but, you know, we just had to, to keep bringing ourselves. And I did the game with Tony McQuillan and we come together a few times and we just said, look, you know, focus on the game. Forget about the crowd because yep. it was an extremely noisy night and it was really easy to be, become involved in the emotion of the surroundings. So we just kept focus. And um, Michael Bevan had a had an interesting one. I can't remember totals, but um, he hit a court and bowled to back. Roger Harper? Uh, to Roger Harper. And I was at square leg. Tony was behind. Ball come back from where I was looking at square leg. I thought the ball had come out and he hadn't caught it. Tony from behind didn't see the ball bounce, but it didn't look right from behind. Um, We come together and I said to Tony, what are your thoughts? And he said, well, here didn't look right. I said, well, look, from square leg, my, my, my viewing was that the ball looked to have rolled, rolled out. Um, I think it hit the ground. Um, what are you, what are you thinking? And, and ultimately he was, he was the umpire who was the controlling umpire because he was the bowling end umpire. And he said, oh, he said, I don't think I could give it out. And I said, well, yes, I agree. I said, I think it's not out the way it should be. So we went back, we called it not out, and we were probably fortunate that the the replay showed that there was a fairly large element of doubt and that we, we actually got the decision right. Mm. Now, it would have been quite easy because Roger was very adamant he'd caught it. Michael Bevan was adamant that he hadn't caught it. It would have been quite easy to have just gone, you know what, I'll give it out. Um, but we chose to give it not out. And, and in the end, it was, it was a correct decision. And then going into that last over, um, it was, you know, I, we, we would quite often between us on the mic, you know, just give each other a little bit of a, you know, come on get through this and and I said to Tony as we were walking into position I said mate we've got six balls let's work really hard and finish strong Mm. and and then Michael's played some amazing shots and and hit the four on the last ball um which yeah was was an amazing game you know but my son was born on boxing day that Mm. That day, ten weeks prem, and that happened to be the day that Dale Hare called Murley for the first time in Melbourne. Oh wow! So, yeah, so it was, and my wife was due to come out of hospital the day after, um, but we'd had a late night, so for the first time in my career, um, I missed the flight home, <laughs> and I, I was woken by my wife telling me, "Well, I guess you're not on the next flight," and the 
phone getting clunked. So, yeah, <laughs> a lot of memories from that game. So prior to that, you, you'd umpired uh, Sri Lanka against Australia as well and uh, quite a controversial uh, game from your standpoint out in the middle. Can you tell us uh, a little bit what it was like officiating in that, in that environment and, and how, you, how you dealt with the pressure? Yeah, that was a really interesting test match. Um, it was the first time Sri Lanka had been to Australia since their first tour. And the first tour Sri Lanka had to Australia, they were so polite. They were, you know, gave everyone tens, just so happy to be part of, of test cricket. Not saying that they weren't nice people after, but got to Perth. It was the first test of the series. And I was to stand with Kizza Hyatt from Pakistan. Um, I think that might have been, might have been my second test match. Um, no, third test match it would have been. So I've arrived there. I've, I've met Kizza. Um, match referee, the captains, and I knew Dav Watmore from playing for Victoria. I knew he was a, a hard head, tough cricketer when he played. Um, met Arjuna Ranatunga, who was captain, um, and of course the Australian contingent I knew. Um, but we've we've gone out there, we've started. And it would have been in the Australian batting innings. Is that the game where Slats got a double hundred? Yeah, Michael Slater got a double hundred. He got 200. Um, Stuart Law, Ricky Ponting, Debut. Oh, that's right. Yep. Um, you know, they, they batted well. But during the Australian innings, Kizza Hyatt come over to me and, and brought the ball over because it was a year where we were to inspect the ball after every over and, you know, be aware of ball tampering and and all of that type of thing. And he, he came over to me and he said, ah, oh, he said, the Sri Lankan team are tampering with the ball. And I said, oh, I, yeah, I don't think so. And he's going, oh, look at, look at these scratches. Um, I've seen a lot of ball tampering. And, and Kizu at this stage was probably a 20-plus ump- test umpire. Okay. Um, umpired predominantly in Pakistan. Um, so I was influenced by his comment. Um, you know, I went, well, you know what, you've done more than I have and you've seen more. So, okay, let's change the ball. And that was the year we were supposed to change the ball. The, gr- the regret that I had was... Kizza said, no, no, let's just talk to them and tell them to stop. So I said, no, no, we've got to change, we've got to change the ball. He said, no, no, we just handle, handle it like this. And so I said, oh, no, no, we're changing. And as I walked over, I had to walk past the Shrankin players and um, Aravinda De Silva, um, Arjuna, um, uh, Mahama were all in front of me walking over. They've, as I was walking off the ground, they've stopped me. And Kizza was walking with me. 
what happened then? Then they started questioning me, blah, blah, blah. And I relented and I went, no, no, you know, we think that you're tampering with the ball. They're telling me that they didn't. So we've gone back and and went back and played. I was wrong. Should have followed the playing condition. Oh. Should have changed the ball. Got through, got to the lunch break. And obviously the media, because it was a, quite a delay, the media have come to us and said, you know, what's going on? You know, what was the discussion about? And we said, we'll address that at the end of the day. Graham Reed, who was the match referee, Graham, no, it wasn't Reed, uh, New Zealand match referee, lovely bloke, but, you know, we said, he, he asked us, so we told him, and he said, well, you know, we'll change the ball. I said, no, no, we can't change the ball now. We've continued to play. That's that's the end of it. You know, we've we didn't change it, so play on. No further ramifications. Went back, went through the next two hours, got to the tea break, come off, Graham Dowling it was, sorry, the yep. match referee. So come off at the, at the tea break and we walked in. And from an umpiring perspective, this is the last thing you need to do in a 20-minute break. But Graham Dowling has said, oh, I'd like you to read this. Um, this is my press release finding Sri Lanka guilty of ball tampering. Oh, no. I said, you can't find them guilty of ball tampering because, A, we didn't change the ball. We've now bowled another 40 overs with it and you have no evidence. And he's gone, no, no. I've got so we went back onto the field. So we spent 20 minutes basically arguing about that, went back onto the field and thought that it was all, you know, was finished, there was no charges to be laid, come off and Graham's come down and he's shown us a press release where he's charged them with ball tampering and uh, he said to us, we'll have a hearing half an hour after the day is finished. So, you know, again, I gave the evidence that I could, but, um, and I was the one being attacked that it was, you know, why did you, did, you know, why did you charge Sri Lankans with ball tampering, blah, blah, blah. And in actual fact, I was only the mouthpiece. It was Kizza that, that raised yeah. the concerns. And it wasn't until Graham said that, that the Sri Lankans changed their attack. But, you know, look, did they tamper with the ball? Uh, yeah, maybe. Um, I didn't think it was as bad as, as Kizza did. But, but again, we... We were mistaken. We should have made the, the change. We didn't. Um, referee was wrong. Shouldn't have brought charges because we had no evidence. Um, so yeah, it it was very very strained relations from that point forward. Um, you had Murley who was bowling in a test match for the first time in Australia. We knew that there was talk about his his action. Um, was there concerns over Darmasena in that game as well? Or was that a different yeah, game? Yeah, there was. Yeah, no, that, that was Darma, I I believe Darmasena's action was worse than Murley's consistently. Yeah, okay. Um, but, you know, we had Kizer at square leg instead of looking at the batter 
um, from square leg looking at the, the batter at the striker's end, he actually turned and was looking at Murley's arm. Mm. Um, yeah, so yeah, it was just really poorly handled. Um, we had an inexperienced match referee who thought, well, the, the, the opinion was that Sri Lanka was just going to be like they were the first time, very meek and mild. What they didn't factor in was they had a Juna who was a very, very tough captain, mm. um, and Gav Watmore, who was a very tough coach. And they realised that for Sri Lanka to get stronger, they had to become more aggressive and, and, and harder at the game. And you had Aravinda de Silva, Chaminda Vass, Mahanama. Uh, um, you know, they had a lot of young... Jaya Saria. You had a lot of young blokes that were getting schooled in how to play tough cricket. And that's what they did. And, and they fought back and they fought as hard as any team that's toured. They, they had media working out of their change rooms to put their spin on everything. So it was it was a real eye-opener. It was a real learning curve from my perspective, um, you know, on how do you deal with the press. Um, yeah. You know, and, and that whole summer with Murley and, yeah, it was just an ugly summer. Yeah. Yeah, uh, to move to a more positive note, career, what would you say your career highlight would be before we, we round out our chat? What, what what for you, Peter Parker, you, you look back and, and you say that was that was the moment or that was the game that, that stands out the most? Uh, there are probably three. Um, and in order of the, the greatest highlight without, without doubt is always going to be your test taboo. Yep. Um, to be fortunate enough to have done it on the Gabba was was something that was pretty special to me. Um, the one that is probably second would be umpiring my first Shield final, which was also at the Gabba, um, Queensland and South Australia. It was Queensland's first ever win in the Sheffield Shield. So the historic component of that as a, as a cricket and, um, supporter. Um, and the third one is that ODI in Sydney. Um, mm. but there were a few one-day internationals that I did, but I mean, um, I was I was lucky. I had some great career highlights, but, um, but that would be... That would be up there just for the excitement, and you know we 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 tend to have this opinion now around one day internationals or or any cricket that exciting cricket is run scored. Yeah, I prefer to see wickets fall. I, I I love to see the contest where the batters have got to work, and the bowlers can can actually ply their craft with an opportunity um, to get a batter out with their skills rather than getting caught on the fence. So I, I love any competition in cricket where the ball can potentially dominate a bat. Yeah. Yep. Yep. And what, what's the, what's the plans for the future, Peter? What are you doing now? Um, tell us about how you're inspiring the next generation of umpires in, in the work you're doing now. Yeah. Okay. So I'm, 
I work for Cricket Tasmania as the match officials uh, manager. So I've sort of taken that a little bit away from what originally it was. Um, it was a sort of admin development role where I'm looking to get more hands-on with development and talent identification throughout Tasmania. So establishing a good network of people in the north of Tasmania, um, as well as through some of our, you know, um, Southern Cricket Association and Hue and Channel Cricket Association to identify guys or guys and, and females that may look to move and become umpires and and move them into a career where um, they get to do what they love and um, and have an opportunity to see some great cricket. Um, whether that's whether that's in fourth grade, third grade or higher. Um, you know, you, you get to see some amazing stuff wherever you are. Best seat in the house and um, you know, the the more people that can share and pass on the love for the game um, is the better. Yeah, well, you've definitely got a, a love and passion for the game. I, I've loved hearing your stories and I love that you've you've stayed involved in cricket. Uh, I'm 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 sure that cricket is better off for having people like Peter Parker still involved in the game. Now, you've been very generous with your time. I just want to wrap it up with one last question, Peter. If you could have a dream cricket net session, um, you you can have three people that you want to invite to the cricket nets. They don't have to be cricketers. A- anyone you like uh, to hang out at the nets with, who would you choose? Um, my first choice would be Nelson Mandela. Oh yes, um, he he's just such an inspiration. Um, and and the positive mindset, I think he he would bring something incredible to the party. Um, I'd love to have David Shepherd, the former oh yes, Shep, English Test umpire, amazing man, um, just a huge love for the game. And the third one, I'm probably going to throw John Howard in there. Oh, yes. Um, you know, it's a little bit of a diverse mix, but, you know, just what his, you know, his passion for cricket, um, his promotion of the game, even as Prime Minister, and just to be the leader of our country for the, the time that he was. I, I think that you couldn't go past having him at the, the net session. Yeah, You're not the first person to choose, John Howard. I think Peter George... Who's a, who's an aspiring umpire as well? Um, yes. He um, he chose John Howard as one of his selections. So, gee, he's gonna he's gonna have a few appointments, Johnny Howard, for for yeah. our cricket library nets. Yeah. Look, I was I was fortunate enough to meet him a couple of times and and spoke with him and and just you know an amazing man and for, you know when you look at his political career, you know he was sort of. Never expected to be prime minister in that group of um, of the liberal candidates at the time. He led them from from outside of you know from opposition into power, and you know yeah, just strong leadership skills and um, and obviously a very positive man. 
Yeah, great selection, great selection there. Mandela, Shepard and Howard uh, with Peter Parker for his dream net. Well, thanks so much for your time, Peter. I've thoroughly enjoyed listening listening to your stories and I feel like I could talk to you for days. Uh, a, a wonderful career and a wonderful passion for the game and we're so glad that you chose to take some time to share it with our listeners on the Cricket Library podcast. Mate, not a problem at all and uh, thank you very much for remembering me. A massive thanks to Peter Parker for taking the time to share his story with us on the Cricket Library podcast today. How good was that net session? Nelson Mandela, David Shepard, and of course the great Johnny Howard who has had a number of nominations for that net session. Great to see him getting those mentions and what a wonderful career. So nice to hear the progression from playing in primary school and developing a love of the game there through to that conversation when he had a broken thumb that led to him taking up umpiring for the first time and taking it to the highest level, getting to to umpire on the biggest stage of all in Test Match Cricket and, and one day internationals back in the day. That Michael Bevan game would have been absolutely unbelievable to be out in the middle and to maintain your composure for big games like that an absolute credit to Peter and all the other umpires that that do that day in, day out. And learning from setbacks, learning from disappointments and owning mistakes and moving on and moving forward and not letting those mistakes hinder his progression as an umpire. Great honesty, great authenticity and hopefully uh, a lot of learning uh, for all of us listening to that story there. And we thank Peter for his time today and we encourage you if you like that story go back and have a look and have a listen to some of the other great stories we have in the back catalogue here at the Cricket Library plenty of wonderful people have shared their love of the game on this platform and there'll be plenty more stories shared on this platform and we would encourage you to let your friends know like and share on the socials get around the Cricket Library on our on our Instagram feed, on our Twitter feed, and of course the Facebook page as well. And there you can find lots of little snippets from past episodes, etc. But the, the big thing is we would love you to subscribe and we would love you to share your love of the podcast with other people that you think would enjoy it as well. Well, it's been a pleasure spending time with Peter Parker. It's been a pleasure having you as our listeners. This has been Matt Ellis for the Cricket Library Podcast. It's bye for now.